Hi, everyone. Welcome to another podcast episode of WEMcast. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Shauna Pandya, one of the many co-hosts we have here. I am from Canada, a general practitioner over here. And today we're going to be talking all about building resilience in disaster zones. With me, I have the perfect person to be discussing this, Miss Yvette Gonzalez, epidemiologist from Colombia, over two decades of experience working in humanitarian conflict zones, disaster zones, and very timely epidemiological outbreaks. So Yvette, welcome to the episode. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much, Lana, and I love that you invited me. So thank you for having me. We are going to have an awesome conversation today. And to kick it off, I just want you to kind of paint the picture of how austere some of these zones you've worked in, because, you know, in reading your bio, it's incredible. You've worked from Afghanistan to Burkina Faso, all the way to Uganda. So can you tell us a story of, you know, how sparse and how, um, how limited you've been at times? That's such a a hard question because all of these environments, you know, I started working in humanitarian work, uh, like you said, about two decades ago, and I didn't know at the time what I was getting into because all I knew, bright-eyed and 19, was I want to save the world, I want to help people, and I want to learn other cultures, and this very, very uh, basic altruistic feeling, right, about wanting to go out, and what I soon and very quickly kind of trial by fire learned is that in fact, there's so much that resonates with the human experience and that it is more serious than, um, than we probably can imagine. And I didn't know I would be, I was up for it, but I didn't know I would be in some isolated rural villages in the middle of nowhere with no roads. So only accessible um, by plane. So in Congo, DR Congo, uh, Congo, Kinshasa, uh, I was in some of the areas in South Kivu when I first started my career. And early on, definitely no roads to the places we were going, but it was an adventure for me, semi-adventure. And then it was, okay, I can do something practical. but most of the places I've been have been by, by definition, in terms of extreme, isolated. I think, I think more than any other category. And when you give us a sense of how isolated, isolated is, um, obviously this was probably before the time of ubiquitous smartphones and telecoms, but you know, what about geographically? Like paint the picture for us. Okay, so before the telephone, no. <laughs> <laughs> There were cell phones, but they were called Nokia back then. <laughs> and they were very <laughs> analog. <laughs> they were very analog. And I say that poignantly because I have worked in Latin America, where, again, uh, places where there are no roads, places where you had to track for a while to get to villages. I've worked in, in Africa, in various parts of Africa. I mean, there's urban Africa, there's peri-urban, and then there's rural. Um, so I've, I've had those experiences. And then there's been uh, just war ravaged areas that are extreme environments to even comprehend. And then you have to function within them. So I would say, I, I have this for Latin America, that experience was working in places like El Salvador, where you go into valleys and you're helping families that are on mountaintops or hilltops. And we went out to do training of trainers for HIV AIDS because it had been rampant in the area post-conflict. What I didn't understand was that a dam had been built in the 80s. The area had been ravaged by war. 
And the communities that we were helping were led by teenagers and women. And what we didn't comprehend until we got there was the reason they all had their homes on these tiny little mounds of hilltops was because those used to be islands in the lake. And that water was now gone. Their resources had been limited and taken during the war. And all the men had been killed. So the children and the women rose to be natural leaders. And so we conducted our HIV AIDS outreach and work in that context of having to say, okay, I acknowledge what, what they've experienced. I acknowledge what they've been through. In fact, what was hard was it was my country that did that. Um, and you have to reconcile, I think in, in those moments, who am I to them? What does my presence mean? What does it remind them of? What does that trigger? And then how can I somehow reconcile what, what has happened through the work that I'm doing to give back. Uh, those kind of moments, you know, make you pause about what does history teach us about each other? And then what does it mean about our giving together? And what do we, how, how do we help each other? That, that kind of extreme environment, I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so hiking for hours. And then we thought we we're going to take boats and they're like, there's no water. I'm like, but there's a lake on this, you know, map right here. Uh, they're like, no, there's no water. And then this very, very um, Salvador Dali painting of hills with little tiny homes on them. That experience was very early on. But when I went to Afghanistan, that was, oh, that was you know, extremely different. Um, I wasn't even allowed to leave my compound. And when I did, <laughs> um, it was at any given hour, we weren't allowed to know ahead of time what hour we were just to have our bags packed for days right? and then you would get a knock on the door three in the morning um, and you would be rushed off in a hard shell protected car to a helicopter and then taken out to with snipers on the helicopter to an area that you didn't know and you would show up and then that was where you're like oh I'm meeting with the minister of agriculture okay or I'm meeting with the minister of health okay and then you just kind of had to like quickly orient yourself okay this is this part of the program that I'm working on so, you know, there were those moments where you, you knew here were five scenarios that I have to accomplish and you, do, you didn't get a heads up of which one you were going to tackle on any given day. You just had to be ready for all of them. That's a very different extreme. <laughs> That's a very different extreme environment. <laughs> I'll say, wow, there's, there's so many questions and so many directions I want to go from here. So let's, let's uh, start at the very beginning. So you said, you know, that you set it on this journey when you were 19. Um, so did you know, like growing up that this is what you wanted to do, that you wanted to work on capacity building, that you wanted to work on, um, you know, building up these, these extremely impoverished or um, in, in dire straits communities. Um, and where did you grow up? Like, how did, how did that um, exposure to the world's um, problems at a global level come? So uh, I grew up on the border of Texas and Mexico. And, and we were pretty poor, you know, you come from these adverse communities that kind of flourish on the borders of different countries. But I didn't know any better. That's what I that's how I grew up. And then our city became uh, an army base. So then you had a very, very eclectic mix of cultures. But what I wanted to be was a scientist or an astronaut. Uh, <laughs> And I say that kind of like, can you imagine? Uh, I took a 20 year detour. Um, I wanted to be an astronaut because we lived near the desert and, and it was mountains and desert. And at night, the skies were very, very starry. And we could lay out in the back of our truck and say, you know, 
where do you think that star is and dream up whatever we want. And our creativity was never crushed. Um, that I think is like a unique experience to, to some that you're very, very lucky if the nurturing environment doesn't crush what you want and says, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Um, so I wanted to be that, but at that time, back in my day, um, <laughs> you, well, the understanding was that you'd have to be in the military, be a fighter pilot, and there was training to be done that was uh, within the military. And I didn't want to do that. That's not what, as a young girl that I was interested in, I wanted to explore the mountains. I wanted to go geological tracks and do that. And so I didn't know <laughs> when I went to get my bachelor's, uh, how to converge like I I have this desire to travel I have a desire to work with other communities because I grew up in a very eclectic diverse community with Korean black Mexican all mixed together because of the army base and -hmm. when I got to college I thought okay I want to study astronomy but I saw a sign (laughs) in the cafeteria one day and it said had a global map and it said, do you want to travel, learn other languages, save lives? And I'm like, this is what I want to do. What is this? Yeah. It was a so, sign from above, literally. <laughs> and, and that literal sign was a public health uh, recruitment effort from the U.S. government that was going to historically Black, Hispanic, and Native American universities that year. And that no longer uh, exists, that program, but it was Population Fellows. And that Pop Fellows program recruited me that year. And I was one of 17 students across the U.S. who were recruited to D.C. to start public health work. And I was introduced to, oh, I can serve and I can serve in this way to humanity. And I was taken. Like my heart was, that was the moment I knew, oh, I can make a career of something purposeful. I can get paid to travel. I'm in. <laughs> and that's how that journey, that's how that got leveraged. Wow. And you were 19 at this time. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was, I was 20 when I saw the sign, but yeah, I was in, in undergrad. And where, um, where was your first overseas or international deployment to? My, my first experience working overseas was Guatemala, but my first deployment as an employed, had my MPH, my full on was DR Congo. Wow. And so let's talk about managing expectations. Um, so here's, here's Yvette, yeah, young adult going out into the world with purpose. Um, what surprised you about your first deployment um, in Guatemala? In Guatemala, um, I think I was, I was only there for two weeks doing that work, right, public health work, and I was volunteering. But I was surprised at how, um, how careful the team that was permanently there, how careful they were. And I remember we were a team that came in like very excited, very, you know, full of energy to help. You know, we've been sitting in classes for a year and now we get two weeks to help and then like pour ourselves into to doing something. And I was very taken back by the stillness, the quiet, the seriousness of the people who were permanently helping. And I noted that because I remember we came in and 
I guess naively, <laughs> a lot of energy. Oh, we want to work all day. And they're like, pace yourselves. <laughs> um, and we want to do this and we want to do that. You know, and it was a first lesson in, you know, you come with an, you have to come with an open mind, an open heart, an openness to what the context is. And you have to be welcome to that. And you have to insert where you support. You just can't come plop in and disrupt it. And that was very obvious that time because they were just like we have your schedule for you <laughs> these are the families you're helping these are the clinics you're working at you know <laughs> take it take it down a notch <laughs> um so let's explore that a little bit uh, more closely because you you've kind of alluded to these themes of how critical that cultural sensitivity is and how how much it was part of your upbringing based on where you grew up. And you yourself are of Native American and Mexican heritage, as well as having grown up in the US. Um, so you've kind of had these, these ideas of what multiculturalism looked like. And then it sounded like you were um, integrated in a way that uh, that was mindful of the need that, hey, you're only here for a set time. This is to help build a community. There's definitely nothing savior-like about this, which oftentimes has been a known issue with global health. Um, how has this shaped, how did, how was that shaped in your first experience as well as going forward in all of the deployments um, and, and overseas work you did since then? That is such a good question because I think it's the first question that occurs to me when I'm on the plane to go somewhere or be before I'm deployed. Um, and to be clear, you know, after that, all the assignments were through organizations. Um, I have not done any trips on my own since then. It's always been with an organization. It's always been with a purpose. It's always been under the auspices of, of an umbrella that, that told me, okay, can you help in X, Y, Z? In those circumstances, I think, and, and I'll take Congo because that was my first deployment uh, for a year, I had to read so much beforehand, but what I had hoped somebody would have done is connected me to somebody local before I left so I could really get a briefing on what's about to happen. Um, now, it didn't, a year didn't peel back, two years did not peel back the, the layers of the onion, right? But I was always aware that if I were going to be somewhere to come help, uh, that I have to contribute in a way that's actually me asking, what is it that you need? Why do you need it? Has it helped before? And what can I do better? Those are the things that, that I'm very aware of. So when we opened like emergency nutrition centers in Congo, it was very important to understand there are so many other causal factors for why this is even the, the context at the time. You know, it's not because there's malnutrition suddenly, it's chronic. There's HIV, uh, there is uh, mass movements. And I had to be very cognizant every time of who am I working with? Who do I represent? And I always have to remember it's the population I'm working with that I represent. I, I'm in their interest. And I have to really selflessly give, give up like my comfort and my, my assumptions of what's needed. And that's really, really hard when you think, oh, I have so many answers, you know, or, oh, I know this would work. Um, I think the one lesson is the patience and the temperament that comes with. I'm sure many people know this, that, uh, you know, you go out and you have to listen, pace yourself. But it's really hard when you feel like you're up against like, the conflict and the pressure of the donor and the pressure of, you know, 
beneficiaries or, or patients in front of you knocking on the door and it's like, you know, I have to, to, to take all that into consideration and just, okay, one thing at a time so that we'd get this right. And how do you, how do you do that self check? Um, you know, were there times you found yourself slipping into, um, oh, maybe we should do it from this way and then saying, well, that's not what would be best for the community. Or did you see one of your teammates doing that? And if so, how did you kind of say, hey, let's take a step back and let's reorientate to do what would be best in the long term for this community? Yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I say that because, oh, you know, you don't choose your team. I saw a movie with Angelina Jolie and, you know, Beyond Borders, and I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't choose your team. <laughs> you don't get to like, hey, these are the, my tribe of five. Shauna and I are going to go to every country together. We know how to work together. No, you, your teams evolve and you get assigned to, to different teams every time. You never know. Um, you do see the same people over and over, right? And you, and, and you get to know them. But the, the hard part about a self-check is that like anything, you get right into the field and you, you recognize, you take that, that assessment of who's there to help and you see the cowboys, the cowgirls, the adrenaline junkies, the serious, the grounded, and you have to amass, okay, now I have to work with all of these personalities. Where am I in this, you know, where am I in the spectrum at this point in my life? Because it's not, you know, static. And then it's that, okay, because I'm very aware of the people that I'm, that I'm with working with because I need to get things done. And there are always you know, in that medical response, you have the United Nations personalities, you have the NGOs, you have the host community. And every day, it's a, a check in, maybe not just a self awareness check in, but a check in of what the context is. Um, and I have to say each time, it's not a self check in with me, because I feel like I'm doing that every five minutes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very cognizant of like, hey, if I'm in this high pressure environment and I have to be very careful the quality of care that we're providing or the quality of an evaluation or assessment so they can get care later. Okay, how do I know what is going on here? And that's, I ask a lot of questions. And so my personal approach is I constantly ask questions. I'm asking the drivers, I'm asking security, I'm asking uh, the host population, I'm asking the patients, I'm, I'm constantly nosy. I'm nosy by nature. <laughs> That's my song. Um, but that I think is the best way to temperament um, what needs really are, because if you're hearing the superficial level of what's needed, like reading the reports and you know, and reading the, or watching the news, you're getting that superficial, like higher level, this is the blanket situation. But I ask tons of questions to people until they tell me not to. And I've never been told to stop asking questions. So that's my, that's my approach really. 
So that situational awareness, not only being aware of the need to be situationally aware, but constantly trying to build that, hey, what, you know, what are the, who are the stakeholders and what perspectives do I need to be aware of? It it sounds like was key into your integration Um, and just keeping your head on a swivel. Like you're talking to everyone at this point. Um, And in previous conversations, you've mentioned to me, you were leading teams quite young. You're in your earlier, early twenties at this point, you're overseas, you're leading teams. Um, what was that like? Because I imagine that some of your team members come from different countries, different disciplines, are older than you. Um, did you ever run into, hey, what does this kid from, you know, the United States know? Um, or did it integrate really easily? And what do you think was key if if you were able to do so um, easily? And, and I, I say that because I swear when you start asking, I flash through all the teams. <laughs> I'm like, wow, Uh, (laughs) because one, it's inspiring, right? One fundamentally meeting people is interesting because you're like, okay, what's your story? Why are you in this field? How'd you get trained? Where, where did you get trained? Why are you here right now? Why in this moment of your life? Um, And I will say sometimes it can be scary, right? But you have to recognize that pretty early as somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience and if they must stay and they're mandated to have a you know, a few months here and, and work with your team, how do you best integrate them? And, and where do you leverage their strengths? Uh, and then if somebody's really experienced to really take that opportunity to learn from them and let go of your ego. And it's very hard. So I will give you two examples of like the toughest times I had with teams, because typically I like, I like my teams. We get our work done. I think a lot of people can put aside their ego and say, okay, what do we have to do? And it's a matter of, here's the plan and here's your part and here's my role and let's do this. There were two instances where I thought, what were they thinking? And that was, because, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I say they, you know, the powers that be at the headquarters. Um, and there was like a 24 year old nurse who had never worked out of, uh, I think it was from Europe. And she came down and she was very young and and the the mission was french speaking so we're all speaking we had australian american french uh togo we had a whole mix of of the team and they were really interesting she was so young and so immediately i would lose track of her (laughs) so that meaning in an environment like like a, a war zone you can't lose track of your team and so it was constantly day by day, like, where is she? Somebody find her. Please let her report to the, to the nursing station. You know, it was, it was this. And then come to find out she had never even drawn blood. And so it scared me because we were in the clinic and I needed to get a booster shot for, I forget what, what uh, I had. And then I saw the way she was coming at me. I go, have you ever given a shot before? She's like, no, I'm really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wait, 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 wait. We are, we assigned you to this clinic. You know, you're going to be doing this a lot. You can't be nervous. And, and recognize immediately she was forming relationships with some of the local population, which we were not supposed to. And then it became a liability. And she even agreed she wanted to leave. And, and that was good because she recognized, she's like, I'm not ready for this. But I was so grateful that we opened that conversation because we all saw it. And we didn't want the patients to suffer. So, that, so this was something that was thank goodness, agreeable on all sides. And she went back for more training in her home country. And then that, and I'm hoping to this day that that worked out for her. That was like 20 years ago. The other one was in a really recent disaster. Um, there were a medical doctor 
and a physician's assistant who were with us on our team. And they, it was clashing from the beginning, which was shocking because they were both professionals with years of experience. And, and I have to say it was a lot of mediation um, and, and you couldn't take sides because everybody was qualified to be there, but it was high stakes. There was a high response, you know, um, pressure to respond. And we only had 10 days and it, and it was still in the, in the midst of the crisis. So um, I got called <laughs> and I got called often to say, can you just come mediate? And I'm like, mediate what? <laughs> we have patients, we have people to see. We're like doing house to house visits, you know? And, and uh, in the end, one of the, the uh, professionals did opt to leave early because they couldn't conduct their medical work in that environment. And we all agreed that was, a, that was the best scenario, but it shouldn't be, you know? Um, in that scenario it was though. So you never know what you're gonna get. You just have to be acknowledge and honest about it and then find find a way around it it's like a it's like a box of chocolates international development <laughs> edition <laughs> totally so these these sound like really um tough conversations how do you how do you broach those and you know in these cases at least the individuals had the self-awareness to make the decisions for themselves to leave um have you ever run into a situation where you had to kind of you know, gently but lovingly push the individual in question to come to this um, realization and decision themselves? And if so, how did you broach that? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's tough because you want people to succeed. You you want to see somebody, you know, oh, yep, you're right. Let me learn or let's learn together or let me find, you know what? So the first thing I always do is I have a private conversation to say, um, tell me what's, you know, going on because I always think, you never know why somebody is in the field for the first in the in the first place, uh, because what I find a lot of times is there's something personal happening or something socioeconomic behind it. Like some people are in the field sometimes because they're going through a divorce and they're they're running from their other life, but they're professionals and they're doing their work, but they're just more uh, focused than others. And you're like, okay, so what is your driver? What's your incentive? What's happening in your life now that might be distracting? And let me understand that so that I know where the, the activity or the behavior or whatever is coming from. It always helps to know that. And I will, I guess I preface this by saying, I just happen to be someone like you that people like to talk to. And, and I rarely, rarely have somebody say like, I don't feel comfortable talking to you about this. I actually don't think I've ever heard that. <laughs> Um, because I give people the option, like you can talk to me or you can talk to somebody else. And they're like, well, no, I want to tell you. And I'm like, okay, listening. Um, and I think that part of that is uh, also knowing that I'm open to tell my story um, and open to saying, you know, I'm flawed and I do everything correctly. And I'm always asking questions because I'm learning. But if you open that door to say, okay, look, you are the medical doctor in charge and something's going on. Can I talk to you? And then on the side, have that conversation in private and say, like, I respect your privacy. What is, is everything okay? And is there, you know, what's going on? Is your family okay? Are you all right? You know, genuinely asking these things to know what circumstances are behind someone's emotional state as they're working with you in the field, because there's no margin or very minimum margin for error in the field, right? Um, you come bearing the intent to do no harm. So it's important to know, are you in the right frame of mind today? 
And it's perfectly fine to say, you know what? If today's not the day, let's just change the schedule. Let's, sh- let's shift the roles of the team. And by that, I think you ascertain what people really, what strengths they really have, what they really want to be doing. And you always have, and I hear people say, oh, I, don't, I didn't have the option. You always have the choice to rearrange the team to be stronger and, and to play to strength. So, you know, I say that, it sounds simple that I'm talking about it now, but it, <laughs> it was not simple when it's happening. <laughs> But that's a, that's a really key thing that you just said there. That's an important lesson for any operational environment, realizing that you are always empowered to maybe take yourself out of the situation, request to change the situation. Um, and, and you kind of hit on my next question, which was a lot of this sounds incredibly mentally taxing to see how quickly the situation is changing the fact that your security and safety can be at risk and that you personally are being asked to be a mediator amongst your team who is supposed to be there functioning as a cohesive unit. Um, So how do you deal with that? How do you mentally offload? Did you ever get burned out and how did you deal with that? Yeah, I, um, that's a really good question because it's changed over time, right? What used to help me deal in in the first five years I would say the first five years of being in the field was between my I was 27 when I was the chief of party in Congo Um, and then I was maybe about 30 I was in my mid-30s when I was in Haiti and I was in you know so I I, I'd look at the range of how did I respond in each country and how did I respond in each context and each emergency Um, certainly it's hard to answer because it's changed so much but I'm one grateful that I'm dynamically evolving because if I'm not, then something's wrong. <laughs> um, I am one who live it, learn it. Um, if I made that mistake before, I'm not going to make it again. Huh. It's, I, I'm, I'm actually, it's hard to answer because I want to give you an example. Um, maybe, I know I'm, I'm blanking on a good example for you. Maybe ask me the question again and I'll, and you can edit that out and I'll answer the question. <laughs> sure. Okay. So um, my question for you is that with all of the, everything that you're doing with the constantly changing environment, with the fact that you are, your safety may sometimes be at jeopardy, that sometimes you have to deal with internal conflict within your team when you're supposed to be presenting as a functioning cohesive unit and then you're being asked to be the mediator that's a lot to deal with and that can be mentally exhausting so how did you mentally offload and was there ever a time that you burned out from this and if so how did you bounce back so that's a really good question and yes it it has evolved over time but what I do now that I think I've subtly done all along is I used to journal. I used to write down how I felt every day. Actually, I was blogging <laughs> back when blogging was cool. I used to <laughs> blog and I read back on that and I thought, wow, I was very candid about my feelings publicly. What was I thinking? Um, and I think to some extent now we use social media for that, right? Where I, I talk to my family only um, and I, I'm like, oh, here's, here's how I'm doing. Um, but I no longer publicly blog. I have my own way of, okay, I'm going to write down how I feel today. Notes on my phone. Actually, I don't even do paper journal. I'm just like really quick notes uh, because I need to get it out. I need, for me, I need it out to cathart. I need it in a list. I need it down on paper because I need it to be outside of my system so that I can process. 
that's my my personal uh, way of getting things out. But I also always have uh, a book that has nothing to do with my work. And I say that because I used to, when I was in Afghanistan, my escape was books. Um, and I used to go to the local market and they would let me go on the weekends and I would grab an English speaking book, bring it back. But all the books were about Afghanistan. <laughs> And all the books were about war. And I was eating them up because I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see that. I, I really uh, resonate. But I realized that I never took a break. And so for, I would say, a three-year period, even when I would go back to D.C. and take a two-week break before going back out, I was, like, eating up Afghanistan books. And, I mean, I could have written a dissertation on Afghanistan. And I decided after that that, that I was burned out and I didn't know it. And I immediately was sent to, to Haiti for the earthquake. And so I just cut from Afghanistan suddenly and I was in Haiti in the earthquake. And I recognized when I was in Haiti, I need to read books that break my concentration from war and, and, and disaster. And I need something that lightens my load a little bit, entertains me. Maybe it informs me, but I needed something opposite. So I always take something fun with me. Um, and I make that, that moment in the car, in bed, wherever I can squeeze it in. But I have to steal away time for myself to be alone. And I, and I do cherish hiding in the bathroom. <laughs> now I've told everybody my secret. The bathroom's my hideaway. <laughs> they were like, Madame, you're gone for a very long time in the bathroom. Are you okay? <laughs> like yeah I'm fine but I would never tell them what I was doing which is I was reading <laughs> <laughs> hey you gotta have your you gotta have your safe place do you have any memories of any particular books that were just you know super light funny that were just like that you know was the the that was the parachute that day oh uh well oh god now I'm forgetting the name of it but it was the one that the the guy who wrote he traveled from the bottom of Africa to the top of Africa. Oh, I forget any of that book. Um, I'll remember it later, but that was so hilarious. I mean, you could hear me laughing out loud in the bathroom. <laughs> from, the, from the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one time, and I, I know I'm going to tell this story and tell a lot about myself, but we were in the middle of nowhere in a village in Congo that had no roads to get to. We flew in. I was there for a week. And what I didn't know, we had an outhouse, you know, the, the bathroom was outside. And I took my book. <laughs> and that morning I was leisurely getting ready. What I didn't know is that the team meetings took place outside next to the bathroom. <laughs> and I was sitting reading, and then I hear like a lot of voices. And I looked through like a little crack because it was just wooden blanks, by the way. And I looked at, I'm like, my whole local team my expat team was sitting there like where is she I haven't seen her where is she well let's just have a meeting without her and I was like and I just sat through the whole meeting in there I just and I came out they were like were you with her the whole time I'm like please don't tell anybody so I'm very careful now about my reading uh, hideouts and, and just to, to paint the picture, were they hearing the occasional burst of laughter or giggle from the outhouse? No, I was like, I had my towel. I was trying to be really quiet. I was so, I just was so quiet. I don't even know why I didn't just open and come out. I was just so quiet. I just like, oh, I don't want them to know. 
<laughs> now, why no one found me out, I don't know. It's so funny. I hadn't thought of that for like two, <laughs> for 16 years. <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. You're very welcome for Thank that. You. that memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about the logistics and just the planning for the operation. So how long are you gone for at a time? How are you packing for this? How mm. are you, you know, doing the, the, um, secession planning, um, saying to your family, Hey, bad things may happen. Um, let's start there and then do some follow-up questions. So, you know, again, that has also evolved, but now I'll tell you what I do now. If I get a, an offer for a, a post or an emergency it, it, and it's, it depends where I'm going. I have had now for, I have to say since honestly, only 2006 is when I started to do my plan. And in, at that point, I did my plan because I thought if something happens to me and I'm repatriated, expatriated, I want to make sure that in the midst of that kind of a trauma for my friends, my family, that decisions can be made on a list without having to worry. They can just say, okay, here's the, dun, 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 dun. here are the numbers to call, here's where to go, uh, here's who to inform. Um, and so I did that and reconciled that a long time ago. It was really, really tough to put that to paper. And I shared it with my beneficiaries for every plan that I had. And that was what to do with my social security, what to do with my belongings, where I have a storage or two units. Um, <laughs> what, what are my medical desires, you know, depending on what the situation is? Um, what is what is my plan if, if it is uh, my death? What do I, you know, everything was on there because I just had to say, Okay, the truth is I'm going into some really uh, extreme context, some very complex context that I can be kidnapped or accidentally killed or in a car accident. Car accidents are very, you know, uh, typically the number one reason that humanitarians do pass or get injured is because of a car accident. And, and we're in the cars a lot. So I reckoned with that conversation with myself a long time ago. And, and more practically. But when I shared it, of course, my friend, my family members were like, what, we don't have to have this conversation. I'm like, yeah, we do. We have to have it. And it's okay. Because what I want is for you to, to be able to go through these motions without having to detach emotionally from whatever you might feel. Um, and then it makes it easier. But that was like a three page document <laughs> in the end. Um, and I was very thorough because I didn't want anybody uh, entangled in, in anything. So when I got that done, it felt like a relief. Like I felt very unburdened when I did that and, and very, um, I guess, more grounded in what I was doing because I had accepted like, this is an outcome, it's one outcome. But the other outcome is I do great work and I come back and we're great, you know, and I can continue to do this work. When I take an assignment now, I think about a lot of things for why am I going? Is my contribution meaningful? Is it necessary? Is, is going to Afghanistan right now for three months to help the Ministry of Health decentralize and create a new map for their uh, decentralization plan critical during the height of some attacks? Or do I say no, take a pass on that and work remotely on Sierra Leone? And I make those decisions now much more with intent because before I was so hungry to get in the field. I wanted to have like roll my sleeves up. I wanted to be in the action. And that has changed completely. Um, 
And I say that because a lot of people don't say no. They say yes because they think they need the money. They think they need the experience. Uh, and they're willing to risk for something that might not be necessary. And trust me, though other opportunities are all constantly happening. And I will say this. My first year working at USAID in Washington, uh, my Kenyan colleague was there. And he was much older. And he said, so you're new. <laughs> Um, let me tell you, you said, you look very excited to go out into the field. <laughs> and I said, I am excited. Oh. Um, he goes, but I'm going to give you some advice and just remember this always, always remember the best thing about your job is also the worst thing about your job. You will never be out of a job. That's going to be the truth of your life. You will never be out of a job. And he was right. I've never been out of a job, but you won't ever be out of a job because someone is suffering. And you just need to reconcile that early on and just always bear that in mind, okay, that that's why you're working. And I said, whoa, that was a very powerful thing to tell me. Um, so, so that's what I think of when I, when, I, when I think about, oh, should I go to the Bahamas for Hurricane Dorian? Is it necessary? Um, should I go back to Afghanistan? Should I, should I go to Nepal? You know, I weigh all those things. Packing is something totally different. <laughs> You know, that decision comes and then it's like, oh, what do I pack? Well, my top three things to pack are toilet paper. <laughs> I always say toilet paper. Um, that's a force of the habit, by the way. Um, and it just depends if I'm only going to take a little carry-on, which I can. I can live out of a carry-on for two months. Um, or am I going for longer term and I take my suitcase? Um, and then it depends where I'm going, like what... You know, I don't have any medications, but I, I know people pack that first. I just pack my roll. <laughs> um, and it, it, it literally, I don't have any staples that um, I say take to every country except my camera. Um, but I take my emergency information with me. So if somebody finds me, they know that I'm allergic to something. They know what my blood type is um, and that I keep on my person. But everything else evolves around where am I going? How long am I going to be there? And what's the reality of what I need? So I, I, just backing up, are you taking one ply or two ply toilet paper? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm environmentally conscious. <laughs> just curious. So this is, these are these are incredibly important lessons, and in hindsight, twenty twenty, it, it's uh, you know you're painting a very um, compelling picture of you know why it's important to do the succession planning, why it's important and critical to build that discipline to hold yourself back from saying yes to everything. Um, for those who are getting into this field and who are like, ah, mm. you know, it is depressing to talk about your own demise in your twenties. I'm not going to do that, um, or you know, it, it you know. Yvette's just, you know, Yvette just doesn't need to do all this, but I need to say yes to everything. What would you say to them um, to, you know, help underscore the importance of, you know, really dial dialing it back and picking and choosing your missions um, or your overseas uh, deployments? Um, and also in terms of hammering home the importance of having a plan in case the worst were to happen. Oh, and I, and I wish I'd known this in the beginning, but to listen to your gut. I mean, we are, we have a sixth sense, right? You have that, that nodding. I have, for me, it's a, like a nodding in my core 
my gut, when I know something is really not right, or when I'm questioning and doubting, like, hmm, and that's different than the, that uh, excited fear, you know, and, and I always have to say, am I excited, scared, excited to go? Or am I like hmm, red flag? Okay. And then, and knowing the difference early on, helps in everything. It helps with relationships. It helps with your job search. It helps with the university. I mean, I guess I used that barometer like of, of making sure I made decisions that were um, for the right reasons for me. When I was, yeah, when I was about, I guess, 26, 27 is when I started to say, okay, I got to be really serious about like, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm 27 and I'm, I'm taking the chief of party in Congo. What, what am I thinking? You know, what am I getting into? It's all Francophone and I'm American. I'm going to be the youngest person on the team. I'm going to be the American on the team. I'm going to be uh, walking into, and I knew it was right, you know, as I was getting ready to go and I'd already accepted it, but I was still kind of like, why did I accept this? Am I like trying to prove something to someone? Um, But no, I was genuinely excited about using my skills in a place where I thought they would be meaningful. Uh, going to a place where I knew I was going to learn a lot and I was learning more about the team and I thought, oh, this team is going to teach me a lot. And that fear I had was different than a red flag. It was like, oh, I can do this. I can handle this, you know, and I have had that same fear for all the places I end up going. <laughs> um, and for all the times I had that twist, not uh, my, my gut telling me mm, something's not right here Mm, ask those three questions again. I just had to drill into remembering interviews for those posts are for you to interview them too. And I don't think that many people, you know, take interviews that way. You take interviews like I got to prove myself and they're asking me if I'm qualified to be the medical respondent there, or they're asking me if I'm the professional that is right for that position. But you certainly have the right to ask, is this the right team and environment that I want to work in? Is this the right program that I want to contribute to? Because once you get into that, it's really more tough to get out of it um, and be productive in an environment that's toxic for you or that maybe is more dangerous for you than you anticipated. And that's harder. So yeah, listen to your gut and then asking lots of questions because you know, you're interviewing the, the context, you're interviewing that team. Um, they tell you, hey, we need a medical doctor for three weeks. You know, oh, it sounds like I can do that. It's only three weeks. Uh, but those three weeks can be damaging if it is a very toxic environment and you don't even get to do any work, right? And it's a, a wasted time of your skills. So for, for that, I would say academic decisions, work decisions, and certainly for, for picking areas that you want to work in. Um, ask the questions and make sure that what you're doing doesn't make you feel the red flags. That's, I think that's applicable to, you know, every part of our lives. If, is this good for me? Is this not? Is this toxic? Is this not? Um, I want to touch on the, the, the harrowing stuff. So you've talked about the, the threats to your safety, the being woken up at 3am for a impromptu meeting with, you know, the minister of, of health in whatever country you're working with. Um, do you have strategies for, developing that resilience to to cope with the constant threat to safety or, or with an unknown ever-changing schedule so part of this is it's a really hard question because part of this i'm learning is like that innate grit you're born with you know there's there's something to be said about my experience with you is i know what innately is just like who you are and then i'm really impressed with what you 
the way you behave in response to your environment. And that's two different things, right? Um, so I'm, for me, the, the grit part of me, the innate part of me, it's like my spine is straight when I'm, <laughs> you know, tested or challenged and I feel it. I'm like, you know, add attention inside, you know, I'm all my spikies are out. Um, it meant the yeah. porcupine. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know when something's up, you know, and, and I trust that sense. I'm like, Ooh, the, the hairs are on the neck of, back of my neck are up. And I'm like, okay, alert. There's something up. Um, but then there's the, and I didn't do this early on. I was so young. I was trying to, to, to stay above water. I know now I listen and I mimic the behavior uh, in the environment I'm in. And I say that with uh, respect because if I see that everyone has now silenced because somebody else moved in the room, I follow suit because that person must be of high respect. Uh, I ask you know, quietly to other people. Okay, what is the behavior here was expected? Again, the asking beforehand to, okay, I'm aware in many contexts, I'm a woman, I'm American. I, I mean, I, I go through the list of what it would, all the assumptions that could be made of me. I look very young. Um, I've been told many times when I'm going in to meet with ministers and to negotiate to dye my hair gray. <laughs> and I'm like, it is gray. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> um, to be taken more seriously. So I'm, I'm always constantly like, okay, before I get into a situation, if I have time to prepare, what am I getting into? Am I allowed to shake hands? Thank goodness people warn me because in Somalia, they don't shake hands with women. So I had to know that because I, as an American, automatically, like, nice to meet you. Um, and so offensive. And so I had to be very cognizant of like, oh, I can't put my hands up. Every time something uh, extremely adverse was going to happen or I was going to meet with somebody in a dangerous situation or be met with a dangerous situation. In most cases, I had warning. Most cases, I had a briefing. In most cases, I was already mentally preparing myself slowly, most. Um, meaning that I took the temperament from the people around me, asked a lot of questions, and then I armed myself with information. Like, how much can I know? And I'm going to tell you, there was only one time I was not prepared. <laughs> and to that, I would say, besides the, the 4 a.m., I knew those things were going to happen. So I was kind of preparing for all those scenarios in Afghanistan. But in Congo, there was one that I was not prepared for. And I just, um, I was completely, the first time and only time in my life, I was out in the dark, like, like tethered to the spacecraft, but like floating far. <laughs> what is happening here um but i maintained calm i spoke less than normal and i just waited to see what was going to happen around me to absorb the impact of what was happening um and that was i think i, I don't know if I, I told you this um the the so the world food program gave food a year before i arrived into this context and now it arrived uh, expired so the food was expired when it arrived. Now there's a whole protocol, I don't know what it is today, but the protocol back then, 20 years ago, <laughs> was that there were only three ways that you could get approved to get rid of spoiled food so that no one would eat it and get sick from it, right? And apparently there had been contestation of how the food would get destroyed. And so it was just sitting in a warehouse. 
And the longer it sat, the more upset the population, and I don't blame them, the local population got upset that you're hiding food from us. I get there a year into this and I inherit this issue. <laughs> and of course we have medical supplies coming in. The storage is full with food that's expired. And we have a population who is now up in arms and protesting and protesting by you know, throwing rocks at our offices. Our staff can't leave their homes, you know? So this is a nine hour drive from the Capitol. And I said, okay, I'll go. So we drove down. Um, and these are the days of where you like hide a SIM card in your bra because if they take your phone and you find another phone and you have to call somebody, you get kidnapped, you want your extra SIM card in your bra. Uh, you tape your money to your legs, like the whole thing. So we're in the cars. Mm-hmm. When I get there, they're like, okay, we're going to get on the boat. <laughs> what boat are we getting? Why, why are we getting a boat? Um, one person's going to go with you. The, the head of the staff here, the local staff, and I said, okay, where am I going? And they said, well, you're gonna go to the leader of the armed rebel group that is actually in control of this area. <laughs> and mind you, no kid didn't work out there. So what they gave me was the Iridium satellite phone. And I'm like, so, but I don't understand what I'm, what I'm going out there. Like, you need to negotiate uh, with him to calm the population down and then to get uh, secure passage to get the trucks to come get the food out for you. I got in a boat, uh, Shauna, and I had an Iridium phone. <laughs> I was clutched for dear life. And, you know, I'm 28, I guess, 27, 28. And I get in this little tiny boat with my uh, head staff member. And we're going on. He's coming to basically negotiate, uh, to translate for me. Uh, to not Swahili, but Lingala. And I'm like, okay. So on the outside, I was very calm. I think because I was beyond the point of what I knew what to do in my depths of what to do. And I thought, I'm just a public health expert. <laughs> I can help people. <laughs> so we, we get out to an island and it was a tiny island. And there were four families, all his families, uh, I guess, uh, just there on the beach. And the boat gets there. We walk up just this one island, you walk to the top, you can see everything around it. In the middle of Lake Tanzania, I think, I forget the name of the lake. And there's a hut and three men, one sitting and two on the side. And what I perceive to be on the table, two sticks of dynamite. And I'm like, (laughs) and all that's running through my mind is, I hope my writing was clear on all those papers to my family. I hope they know where my storage units are. Um, and we just, I was very calm. I was very deliberately slow, clear, calm. And I was very respectful of, thank you for having me. Thank you for this conversation. And what would you like to know? Because I can explain our situation, but, and, and we had a very amicable, what I think it was two hour conversation. And at the end, uh, I was speaking in French. They were translating Lingala. And at the end, he spoke French to me finally. He goes, I just wanted to make sure you were telling the truth. And I said, can I ask you now? Because <laughs> he agreed to terms. He was going to come back and escort the food. He was going to tell the people to calm down. He wanted to work with us, blah, 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 you know, to make sure everything went well in the future and that we communicated openly. It was, thank goodness, it turned out to be one of the best meetings we could have had. But I said, can I ask you why you have two sticks of dynamite? He's like, 
I don't have dynamite. And he picked them up and they were two rows of four D cell batteries taped together. They were charging his Nokia. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You had me (laughs) porcupine mode, spine straight, hair on end with that story. That, That was incredible. And, you know, everything that we started off talking about, you know, the cultural sensitivity, the being respectful, the asking questions, head on, head on a swivel. Um, you know, that situational awareness that all came into play. That's, you know, that is such a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> I'm like, I hadn't thought of that for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> we should have just titled this, this podcast, Yvette takes a stroll down memory lane. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, in our final few questions, I do have a couple more that I want to ask you. So part of it's about building that cultural sensitivity. You speak a lot of languages. What do you, what do you speak? Oh, well, actually I speak today, <laughs> uh, Spanish and French. Uh, I work probably 75, 80% of my time. I'm, I'm working and operating in French. Um, even now I cover Burkina Faso and parts of Africa. Um, but I have studied along the way, uh, Swahili, Hindi, uh, Arabic, German, and Russian. Oh my goodness. Wow. And oh, in Turkish. La prochaine fois, on peut faire ceci en français. Voilà, si tu veux. And so you have done so much. I'm in awe. And, you know, the next time we get together, I just want to continue this conversation because you have seen some things. Um, (laughs) Of all the things you've accomplished, you know, policy development, building up women, building up the youth in a community, making them the leaders. And what are some things that you are most proud of? Ooh, uh, for my work. (laughs) Oh, it's, it's, again, man, you ask hard questions, you know. Um, I'm overall endemically through my whole career. I'm, I'm proud, uh, that I recognize early and I'm proud that I can uphold my integrity and, and I can say yes and no when needed because you need to identify when something's wrong. So I'm proud of being able to, and, and this is very rare for people, I, I think, depending on what culture you come from, depending on where you've been working and what your circumstances, to be able to say, hmm, that, that doesn't look right. You know, that's not right. And I'm proud to be an advocate for local populations. You know, that's one thing I'm really proud of to say, I don't do this for myself. I, I, I can't do this for myself. Um, I want to do no harm. So when I see injustice, woo. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really proud of being able to advocate for, for local populations when I can. Wow. You're just supposed to answer questions. You're not supposed to make me feel such profound feelings. About oh. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you know, uh, I would say, though, I feel that way about our, our work, too. I mean, you, you transfer. Um, yes. And you're hitting on the, one of the last questions I want to ask you. So for those of you, for the audience who doesn't know, you and I know each other from the space world. Um, you know, we test spacesuits together. We fly, we flown zero G together. Um, that's quite the transition, but it's not, it's also a highly operational environment. So in, you know, how did you, you, you started off wanting to be an astronaut? How and when did you decide to transition back? And what are some key lessons that you have taken with you from one operational environment to the other? I will say four years, well, 2017, 
I had already felt for a few years, I had done uh, like five different countries in Africa and I was living in Haiti. So I was like full-time in Haiti, took a break. <laughs> I went to Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, Senegal, and Mali in one trip. And when I came back, I was, I won't say disheartened, but I was reinforced about my question about integrity of the, of the uh, industry because I didn't go to do what I normally do, which is write programs, do evaluations, stay with the population, do assessments and, and be able to get to know them. I was going to fix relationships. I was going to fix, okay, this donor no longer wants to give funding to our program because of X, Y, Z, can you fix it? And it was this, um, I was drained. I did five months of like negotiating to reinstate funding for programs to help communities. And it often was that there was just some miscommunication between the expatriates and the donors, and it had nothing to do with the local population. Uh, but I unearthed in all of that, okay, something's broken. You know, something in the system is broken and I, and I don't know that I can fix it. I'm one of those, I've seen you do this too. If there's a challenge or a problem, I'm not just going to state it and vocally like come forward like, okay, there's a problem. I'm gonna come with some solutions too. You know, that way we can have a starting point. I didn't have a starting point. I didn't have an ultimate solution for all the things I was seeing. Um, and the things I felt were, it was unfair to the local population and I didn't want to enable that culture. I wanted to be there to support, respect and be a guest uh, and do my best to um, encourage local resilience mechanisms. I didn't want to come impose myself. And I saw a lot of that and I thought, I need to do something different with my skill set, And I need to find a different way to give back that doesn't question my integrity. And 2017 to 18, I was interviewing everyone I knew. <laughs> what do you do? Is it meaningful? And are you happy to get up on a Monday morning? Like, what are you doing with your life? Because I want to apply my skills and it looks like you do something I'm interested in. And after I did all that, I realized, oh, I can transfer my skills today back to space and I don't have to go through the military. I don't have to be a fighter pilot. Wait, wait, wait one minute. <laughs> and then I realized, oh, I, I can get trained and learn a new skill set on top of what I have. And I can find a way to reinvent how I want to get back to humanity. And that's how I came to the program with you. In fact, um, that was yeah. the first step actually. <laughs> At the, yeah, that's right. At the International Institute of Astronautical Sciences. And now, now you're COO and you heard all the space cats um, with all of these lessons learned. And that in and of itself is a conversation for another day. But I, I frankly am grateful to work with you um, both behind the scenes and operationally. And I cannot thank you enough for sharing all of these powerful lessons learned about cultivating that resilience, about asking questions, being respectful, um, you know, lifting others up. And, you know, I just can't wait to see what the future brings um, while working with you. So for those of, of our audience who want to find out more about you, who want to follow up more on your journey, where can they find you? Oh, definitely LinkedIn. Um, I think that's the, the number one place. I'm very responsive. <laughs> so LinkedIn and then also my email. I don't know if I should share my email now or... We can include it in the show notes. Okay. All right. So yeah, email me. I'm I, As you know, I'm very responsive. <laughs> you are. I can vouch for that. <laughs> 
There we go, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Ms. Yvette Gonzalez, who has over two decades worth of operational experience and in developing worlds in conflict zones in epidemiological disasters and is now bringing it to the space world. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me.